Okay, the difficult task of um, deciding what to say the last and final time here. Um, actually, I shouldn't complain. Uh, I was only given six, and I negotiated for seven weeks, so here we are in the seventh week. Uh, what I'm going to do today is just, uh, in the first couple slides, um, we will rehearse a little bit of where we've come so far, and then we're going to move on. Uh, the time period uh, as a turning point I have is about 1880 to about 1930. Very important things are going to happen. Uh, so let's just see where we've come in six weeks. Um, history is, of course, very important um, for Christianity, especially Christianity if you would compare it with other world religions. God uh, created time and space, uh, sent his prophets uh, to give hope uh, to the future. Christ came in time at the right time. Um, and history is essentially God's stage of redemption. Uh, God's word is revealed in the Bible um, and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's always there. Uh, we note throughout time that often theological expression uh, or deeper uh, theological expression comes when the, when the church has been presented with challenges so it's good to have challenges. Uh, one becomes stronger, like lifting weights, right? You don't put enough on, you know, your muscles don't get big. Um, in particular, our look at church history has had an eye to understand, of course, our own tradition of the Reformed um, and Presbyterian within the larger church. So in this case, our Reformed uh, Presbyterian tradition has very clear roots in 2,000 years of Christian expression. Uh, one might contrast that with even many American evangelical uh, tr recent traditions, which to some degree have dropped different uh, aspects of that. What we learned in the early church uh, is the hard lesson that God's kingdom is here, but not fully here. Uh, when Constantine converted to Christianity, the uh, Roman emperor, uh, it appeared that everything had come to fruition. Here we are, God's kingdom here on earth. Well, it wasn't really here. And so we know that under great persecution, God's uh, power was manifest uh, through human suffering. It's amazing how many points and sermons come up uh, at the same time. Of course, like Kevin and myself, we're both praying that God takes our homework and forms it into something like clay. So uh, amazing how this is shown. Uh, the great lesson is how to understand God's kingdom that has already begun uh, but is not fully uh, present. Jesus, though, said, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, but render unto God those things that are God. And so the early church understood uh, as the metaphors of being salt to the earth and light. Um, as Christianity moved forward and interacted with human culture, um, we learned that it's important that, first of all, humans, all humans, not merely Christians, but all humans, reflect God's image, his imago Dei, 
although because of sin, because of the fall, that is seriously uh, undermined uh, very often. But because of common grace as well, on the other hand, it is possible to accept and transform human knowledge to the degree to which it doesn't conflict with God uh, and culture in a useful way, and Augustine showed us that. By the time we get to the medieval church, we saw the rise of, at least in Western Christianity, Latin-speaking, Christendom. Remember the word in Latin, domus, uh, meant household, uh, both a territory, uh, the house, and the holding of the house. And so we derive a lot of words like kingdom or freedom or serfdom. In this case, Christendom meant that in the absence of a state, uh, the church in the Western uh, uh, area uh, became uh, everything, essentially. Uh, This paralleled, however, the experience of, of Israel in the Old Testament, a kind of cyclical Uh, sharing in time of obeying but disobeying. Uh, But uh, as our series is underlining, turning points are all about God's faithfulness uh, in history. By 1000 AD, much of ancient wisdom and knowledge was lost. The Latin word for knowledge is scientia, so we didn't get our modern idea of science as as a set of beliefs, it's not. It's it's really just means uh, how to how to know. Uh, this was reduced reduced the opportunities that people had to know God fully and in in fact to know themselves. Uh, God was seen as a judge sitting in heaven, uh, but uh, denying his earthly uh, body and ministry. By 1300, there was a political crisis called the Great Schism in which. There was at least two popes, if not three. Uh, modern states were developing. Uh, Christendom was certainly finally gone, certainly long before the Protestant Reformation. Uh, 200 years prior to Luther, already there was a problem. By 1400, however, movements emerged uh, that had a deeper quest to know God better and experience his grace firsthand. New methods in the study of the Bible opened up, uh, uh, giving opportunity and devotion. Uh, Jesus' humanity uh, was reaffirmed as a reality, making it possible to identify with him more closely. By 1500, uh, now we're moving into territory where Protestants know a bit more, uh, the church uh, underwent reform. Certainly Martin Luther and John Calvin were Christian humanists, not humanism as it's used in the 19th or 20th century. But in this sense, once again, like scientia, it's not a set of beliefs, it's a method. Uh, The method was how to recover the original meaning of the Bible in original languages, how to translate that into contemporary languages of the day, whether it's German or French or whatever, English, whatever it might be, uh, for fuller understanding. Uh, both dependent on the earlier uh, theological understandings and the scholars uh, and their interpretation. Thus, they truly reform the church uh, rather than depart it from it. 
Uh, yet a Latin church was no longer possible. A uh, little advertisement, because last week I had to. Uh, we're setting this series out calling Turning Points because of uh, a book by Mark Knoll, uh, my mentor uh, for my master's degree. He's just come out with a brand new book, uh, and he'll be honored at the American Historical Association this year for this new book on the Bible. Uh, and so a lot of the books he's written are pretty important to this uh, Idea, these ideas. Okay, so what are the new challenges? Well, I've actually just added this slide. I was going to add it last week and I forgot about it, but uh, because of the sermon, um, here's the point. Uh, prior to 1900, uh, 1800, 19th century, uh, very often God was seen as transcendent, right? Think of tran transporting something, right? So transcendent means uh, God is in heaven. Uh, the old Platonic Aristotelian model of this world that we live in, which is imperfect. God and the angels are in another world. And transcendent means God comes from that other world into our world. Now, during the Enlightenment, uh, transcendence took a beating. Uh, miracles uh, were said to be uh, going against the laws of nature, right? Breaking into the world in that sense. So the word transcendence took on a different meaning. In the 19th century, early 19th century, this word imminence came. Um, imminence means God is now seen as part of nature. Hegel talked about the spirit uh, or the idea, das Idee. And so God is no longer really personal. God is part of everything, not quite pantheism, but certainly uh, God is imminent in the world. Uh, that might have some positive uh, ideas about God's work in nature, in society, and so forth, but this is going to uh, be a big problem when it comes to understanding the gospel as well as ecclesiology, and we'll see this as it goes forward. A couple of things uh, that we're going to tackle today uh, in the short time that we do have. Uh, the 19th century positive is to try to bring the gospel to all people. Uh, throughout the 17th, but increasing in the 18th and increasing even more in the early 19th century, Western European countries begin to colonize the world um, in a uh, very vigorous way. Uh, it's political, it's economic, uh, but along with that was Christianity, going all the way back to Columbus, right, God and gold. <laughs> and so the two could not necessarily be separated. Um, colonization uh, began to disappear uh, toward the end of the 19th century. So we, we enter a period called decolonization, and the problems of rebellions uh, all the way through uh, to the 20th century. Uh, so the first issue that we're going to look at, this is a table of contents, uh, is this whole idea of Christianity and Western culture, uh, which comes first on the mission field, and can one separate that? Number two, American culture becomes very, very strong by the end of the 19th and early 20th century, um, and so we're going to tackle Christianity and American culture to some degree. The second area that we're going to look at but not spend a lot of time on, but it's a backdrop, is 
the ability to spread the gospel through cooperation, but that cooperation because uh, widespread denominationalism in the 19th century, that meant splitting up uh, Protestant churches into much more smaller churches, they all got together and tried to positive goal of bring the gospel to the world, but it created a whole number of organizations outside of the local church or denomination. So we'll take on the history uh, or birth of parachurch organizations uh, there. Uh, Together with this, of course, is ecumenical thinking, right? So ecumenism means uh, a dialogue between, uh, in this case, Christian, number of different Christian denominations, uh, trying to find out what is similar and what they can work together with, even though they may agree to disagree on certain things. Uh, thirdly, list is getting longer, uh, Christianity and uh, modernism uh, is a big issue here. Uh, to what degree does Christianity speak to politics? Uh, to what degree does it speak to economic systems? Uh, and to what degree... Uh, uh, does this then uh, affect science and so forth, right? So the first problem we have uh, in the 19th century um, is that Western countries no doubt are feeling very superior to the rest of the world. Uh, Instead of calling them, of course, developing countries, it's the third world, right? There's never even a second world, right? So Uh, Western civilization in general and America later on uh, brings the gospel to people, but it also brings Western culture and progress. Uh, The birth of foreign missions, right, from Columbus on. um, Christianity is exported to the developing world via Western culture, right, without making any distinctions in that. Uh, And therefore, you've seen pictures uh, churches ne- need to have sta- uh, steeples. Uh, native peoples who don't even wear shirts need to have white shirts on and ties and that sort of thing. But it goes much deeper than that, as we can all imagine. I'm struck with this uh, early problem. Here's the first uh, president of the Republic of Kenya. Um, whether it's true or not, this is what he felt. When the missionaries arrived... The Africans had the land, and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught, how, uh, they taught us how to pray with our eyes closed. When we opened them, they had the land, and we had the Bible, right? So, for what it's worth. So this is an increasing problem. Uh, a little bit of analysis of what's happening. Um, I'm using uh, packaging these things uh, partly because uh, some others have done this work, but I also like to package these from things that you could go on the web and read further if you want to. So instead of you know using 25 books, uh, this particular one, Daniel Bayes, uh, you can find this on the web too um, from Calvin College, is analyzing missions uh, over time. Uh, First of all, early on, there was a general acceptance of Christianity uh, and and the West. Uh, Dominant interpretation, uh, 19th, early 20th century, American expansionism at home and abroad, in addition to the gospel, 
religious element reinforced uh, the manifest national mission of expansion and transfer to overseas of American civilization, democracy and individual rights, the individual conscience, voluntary associations, social and economic free enterprise. Um, and it all looked fairly benign, right? That it's sort of obvious that together with the gospel, all these other things are very, very helpful. And they may have been, but the, it's, it's a benign thought. Uh, there was dramatic changes, as you know, in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, the aftermath of the civil rights movement, disillusionment of Vietnam War, uh, scholars uh, began to look uh, more jaundiced uh, at religious expression, seeing it as part of a cultural aggression uh, against Native Americans uh, and certainly paternalism around the world. Uh, changes to cultural imperialism, of course, are changing things around. Uh, thirdly, 1990 to the present, at least a host of evangelical scholars, as well as perhaps more open-minded scholars, have brought mission studies um, around about again. Uh, mission studies, in fact, have found uh, that there is some historical uh, proof of American evangelicalism and missions who had thought more deeply about uh, uh, contextualization and the gospel uh, that some had. Uh, the point that some missionaries <clears throat> did resist the urge to export American civilization and allowed the gospel and the Holy Spirit to find appropriate aspects within culture uh, to spark uh, people and essentially practices. Uh, one very good example as an Anglican missionary uh, from England, uh, Roland Allen, who was little known but has become more important now. Um, he went to China, as many did in the early uh, period, and argued that the Chinese churches uh, should be self-supporting uh, and self-propagating, self-governing, uh, and uh, adapt it to local conditions. Uh, no uh, institutions of Western civilization uh, should necessarily uh, be there. So Allen's mission strategy for indigenous churches uh, on St. Paul's missionary methods, he's basing this on uh, scripture. He believed the church is a local entity, and there must be uh, trust uh, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, to direct the converts and the churches uh, to grow within uh, a certain culture. <clears throat> um, uh, there's a nice little uh, blurb on Christianity Today on, online about the word contextualization, which is very important in mission studies today. Contextualization involves an attempt to present the gospel in a culturally relevant way. Um, what this means is that culture in itself is not evil, but a composite of good and evil, uh, back as we said, imago Dei and common grace, uh, values and vocations, customs and creations, beliefs, behaviors, characterize a particular people at a particular place. Unfortunately, not all evangelicals uh, understand culture in the same way. Some mistakenly believe that the scripture's warnings against the the world, I suppose, uh, Romans 12, um, and uh, the cosmos are warnings to stay away from culture as inherently evil. All people are fashioned in the image of God, 
and uh, are recipients of common grace. So the argument here uh, for contextualization uh, is that you can always find something within all cultures uh, that could be used to understand the gospel, and of course, in all cultures, there's things to be avoided, uh, on the other hand. So Roland Allen, uh, we can see, understood what he called uh, spontaneous expansion, uh, the local church being indigenous um, and so forth. Now, this didn't mean he'd just preach the gospel and leave, but like St. Paul uh, in his missionary journey, continually wrote letters back to the churches, right, kept in touch with them, but at the same time allowed them to grow in a certain way and encourage the Holy Spirit. So uh, prioritize evangelism um, and really, uh, to the Greek, to, which is possible, stay away, Roland Allen said, from exporting many other things that you might bring along. Uh, practice the apostolic approach is what he had. Uh, as I just mentioned, uh, the apostles returned uh, at visits, wrote letters, but allowed indigenous leadership to arise. Uh, what's happening in missions uh, in the late 19th century, and in particular I'm trying to highlight Presbyterian missions, but I don't have to highlight that artificially because, in fact, uh, hands down, uh, uh, the more I studied this, I realized that more than 50% of all Protestant missions and activity in this way were usually begun by Reformed and Presbyterian. So it's, a, it's quite a, a, a heritage. Um, in terms of uh, Native Americans, as one example, this is sort of a case study, uh, there was kind of manifest destiny, right? Early Americans ripped through uh, Indian land, uh, better or worse, uh, and believed uh, sort of the uh, white um, European uh, mission uh, to bring civilization. By 1924, American Indians became U.S. citizens. Now, that's good or bad, uh, a bit like African Americans after World War II, and then it took another, you know, it took another hundred years to actually got uh, be equal, right? So, uh, this was good. They became American citizens, but this allowed uh, America then to start taking away more land uh, and so forth over time. We won't get into that. But in 1935, the National Fellowship of Indian Workers was begun in Madison, Wisconsin, to try to work on this, uh, working with Protestant churches um, and mission. Uh, it brought Christian workers together with even federal governments and employees the emphasis on fellowship to prompt church workers and federal employees to meet, develop acquaintances and friendships. Uh, in particular, Presbyterian Church provided limited travel funds to Indian families who could participate in these uh, ecumenical conference. Uh, the first Indian Presbyterian Church in America, uh, established in 1871, Christmas Day, uh, two uh, sisters, um, Kate uh, Christine Macbeth uh, went out there first. Uh, she was a great um, linguist uh, from her theological training. She started to uh, bring up some uh, Native peoples to uh, take over uh, leadership positions. Um, and uh, later on, her sister, who was a school teacher, came as well. So they established a mission there. Um, 
the time I have, I'm going to move on. Okay. Um, now, what's interesting, too, is that uh, in, the, in this long birth of power church organizations, um, it's interesting that student activity from the 19th century until about 18, uh, sorry, 1920 uh, was very vigorous, and then student missions almost disappeared. There's going to be an effect of World War I and II we'll look at just briefly. But what's interesting is Williams College, uh, they had a revival. And as a result, uh, in 1910 already, graduates of Williams College became uh, very convinced about, as young people, about missions and started the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, uh, and many joined. By the late 19th century, uh, native preachers uh, and other indigenous people assisted the board missionaries in the biblical uh, Bible uh, translations uh, efforts, uh, translating scriptures into uh, the mother tongue reflected uh, a sensitivity to culture uh, and the desire to work with different societies. Bible uh, translation established among ancient Christian churches such as the Armenians and the Assyrians uh, was really established and went forward in addition to Hawaii. Uh, here's a picture as we see these collective uh, groups. Another group that uh, was highly motivated were women. Uh, in the late 19th, uh, 19th century in general, uh, limited opportunities, either nursing perhaps or elementary school teaching. Uh, very often women had more opportunity on the mission field. Uh, as nurses, they sort of became surgeons and doctors where necessary uh, or where teaching was there uh, and no one else was present. So we see women here, uh, missionaries uh, in China, uh, establish great missions. Now, of course, what's happening here is, uh, as I said, uh, early 19th century is an explosion of free churches coming out of usually state churches. In addition to free churches that are breaking off of state churches, then they're break-offs of those, right? So if the Methodist church in the 18th century already, uh, although Wesley, uh, the Wesleys had never really left, uh, are coming out of the Church of England, out of the Methodist church comes maybe hundreds, <laughs> uh, including uh, uh, things like the Salvation Army, right? So 19th century is just an explosion of denominations. Uh, that's good to split hairs and be faithful to the gospel and ecclesiology, whatever the arguments were, but it makes each group very small. So the opportunity to come together in joint groups and work uh, was the uh, theme for the late 19th century. In fact, that's happening in government as well, right? As you know, uh, the problem of World War I was the alliance of uh, Germany, uh, right, with Italy, uh, and uh, then England uh, and France and Russia. But the solution to World War I was the attempt of the uh, Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations, which sort of died out right before World War II, but the United Nations picked up from that. So there's a kind of mode within culture uh, within the churches to do a similar kind of thing. It's as we unify 
uh, we can make the gospel, uh, take the gospel to uh, the, the rest of the world. Now, of course, what we stress in our churches, in addition to gospel, there's a whole question of ecclesiology, though, which, of course, unfortunately, is becoming less and less important. Uh, and the gospel itself, to some of the liberal groups, links up with the imminence of God, so that, in fact, social gospel uh, is one effective way that grows in the late 19th century to say God's work in the world is through social care. Don't worry about uh, anything else. Social gospel uh, is a very uh, important thing. So uh, good and bad, right, the birth of parachurch organizations uh, in this way. Um, A great movement among students, though, uh, happened uh, with uh, the student volunteer mission for foreign missions. Uh, Dwight Moody, as you know, Moody Bible Institute, a great evangelist, revivalist, and John R. Mott get together and form this student volunteer movement. Uh, The phrase that they had was the evangelization uh, of the world in this generation, right? And so what's subtly moving forward, though, in some of this free thinking is the sense that Christ will come back, but somehow... We're instruments of Christ, and if we don't evangelize, if we don't evangelize to a certain degree, then maybe Christ is not going to come back, and there's a sort of circular thinking there uh, in terms of the 19th century trying to work out in very human uh, terms how God's going to work in the world. So as I say, this is a positive thing, (laughs) great uh, evangelism in this generation, Uh, But um, a lot of other things are starting to coalesce around this energy to get the gospel out, and perhaps some things are being pushed to the side, right? So that's the theme. Um, The SVM appealed to America's best and brightest on the mission field. 13,000 young uh, Americans, mostly college graduates, uh, enter missions and go around the world. Many affiliated as well with the YMCA or the YWCA, in fact, I mentioned that in class the other day at Sacred Heart, and no no student knew what YMCA even stood for, and they were dumbfounded when I said Christian in there, right? It's like amazing, right? So uh, see how far we've come. Um, staff with dozens of missionary uh, people, but there's going to be a crisis because while in 1920 they had 8,742 students working on the mission field, um, by the end of that time, there's going to not even be uh, 800. So there's going to be a big crisis as a result of World War II. Another big shot was the 1910 Edinburgh Conference. Um, The growth of Protestant denominations, as I said, was such that leaders realized they needed to get together and sort of get on the same page. Uh, This possibly was one of the greatest conferences uh, to take place, and it really gave a lot of energy to foreign missions. Edinburgh had certain goals, and they set up commissions to study different areas to say, where have we come, where are we going? So commissions were set up after 1910 to study how to carry the gospel to non-Christian world, the church in the mission field, uh, education in relations with Christianization of national life, 
missionary message in relation to non-Christian world, missions and governments, preparation of missionaries, cooperation and promotion of unity, and the home base of missions. So they study these things. Um, and by World War I, of course, it was a great disruption, right? So 1914 to 1918, uh, most of Europe uh, was impossible to travel through. World War I did not affect Great Britain as much as World War II did, uh, but it disrupted uh, world missions. Um, and the International uh, Missionary Council uh, was started, uh, and eventually that becomes the World Council of Churches. So a little analysis of uh, Edinburgh, and once again, you can find this. Uh, Wheaton uh, has a nice uh, bulletin there for the study of world missions. Um, Andrew Walls is probably one of the, well, I, I would say ranked number one in being a missionary historian who is most respected in the evangelical community, very good friends of Mark Knoll um, and others. So missionary historian Andrew Walls uh, noted recently that this is the century since Edinburgh. All the conference's assumptions about Christianity were proved wrong. The evangelization of the world proceeded, but in other hands than Edinburgh delegates had imagined, making clear that the vigor of global Christian expansion did not depend on the West. Uh, robust forms of popular Christianity, uh, like Pentecostalism we know, especially in places like uh, Latin America and South America, um, have become uh, unstoppable um, as they have moved around the world. In 1910, no one imagined the Christians outside the West could perceive the West as a mission field, as we do uh, today. Uh, Anglican Church uh, in America is a good example of this. Uh, and just the numbers of Chinese Christians now leaving China to missionize places like Africa. Just if, if you know some of these statistics, it's really quite amazing. Uh, so no one knew this in Edinburgh, um, so, so forth. Um, by 1977, uh, 1877, student department of the YMCA uh, formed a more Christian work on college campuses. Um, by uh, 1877 as well, the University of Cambridge uh, in the UK, formed a group, uh, and eventually this is called the British uh, InterVarsity uh, work on campus. Uh, it first is exported to Canada uh, with the connection between UK and Canada, of course, and then eventually it's brought down to the University of Michigan. And of course, most of you have now heard of the uh, InterVarsity uh, mission on campus. Uh, 1886, uh, Moody. Uh, backed uh, uh, Mount Hermon School in Northfield Conference. 251 students came to that, 89 different colleges. Uh, students got together in Princeton as well, so there's a lot of activity going on in the late 19th century. Uh, and by 1895, the World Student Christian Federation is formed, um, and uh, again, John R. Mott and others are behind this. But after 1918, as I said, uh, World War I affected a lot of things uh, in Europe and the world. Uh, a rift developed in the S uh, student volunteer mission uh, 
conservative and liberal theology are going to have a have a battle now. It's been brewing for about 80 years, uh, and the real battle is going to take place now from uh, World War One until World War Two. Decolonization, as I said, is obviously going to disrupt the sense that uh, you have colonized us, we have accepted your Christianity. Now that we're becoming our own, what does that do to the culture that you gave us uh, uh, part of Christianity? Of course, the Great Depression uh, has a huge effect on missions because uh, a certain amount of money that has to go to missions is certainly not there, uh, and World War II again disrupted this. Uh, doubts about mission in post-World War I. Uh, Robert Sphere, head of the Board of Missions of the Presbyterian Church at the time, uh, was very committed to evangelization, yet within the larger denomination, of course, as you know, the PCA doesn't start until 1973, right? And it comes from uh, a, a post-Civil War Presbyterian Church where, of course, the North and the South are going to split, right? So that's the uh, birth we have. So we're still sort of part of this history here to some degree. Um, so uh, there's liberal forces growing within Presbyterian churches. Uh, Robert Handy, a church historian at Union for a long time, noted a widespread impact of this war. Uh, quote, Protestantism was deeply affected by the great disillusionment of the post-war decade during the war itself, American people, with the vigorous uh, support of most religious leaders, maintained a high spirit of optimism about the war, uh, but the tide turned swiftly uh, after the war, that is, uh, the decline of enthusiasm uh, toward uh, and a sort of spiritual depression or religious skepticism was growing in the 1920s. Um, The fundamentalist modernist controversy uh, is probably one of the most important turning points then in the early 20th century, and once again, uh, driven within Reformed and Presbyterian circles. Uh, this religious controversy uh, was responsible for many divisions after this. Uh, Henry Van Dyke, a modernist, pushed within uh, to, to revise the Westminster Confession of Faith, taught, all that, uh, taught that all dying infants... Uh, not just the elect, uh, would immediately go to heaven since God loved the whole world uh, and Christ uh, um, atoned for the sins of all mankind, not just the elect. So it's sort of turning all the distinctives uh, around. By 1901, uh, he, uh, as a powerful figure within the Senate, uh, established a kind of non-binding summary of the church's uh, faith There's no mention of biblical inerrancy uh, nor reprobation. Uh, It affirmed God's love uh, through imminence rather than transcendence. Uh, Mankind adopted, uh, and this was adopted in the General General Assembly. Uh, By 1910, uh, Lyman Stewart, a very wealthy Presbyterian layman, uh, sponsored a series of articles uh, on called the Fundamentals. Uh, a testimony to the truth. So he's on the conservative side, and this, of course, sparks this fundamentalist modernist controversy. I wanted to get it in and out of this quickly, so hopefully uh, this uh, will uh, 
if you have more interest, uh, read into it. But 1919, uh, the church union debate starts again. Uh, Organic union, uh, they're claiming, let's have, instead of all this denominationalism, let's demonstrate God's love and the meaning of the gospel uh, by, instead of dividing denominations, let's just put all the points that people don't quite believe to the side and will unify for the sake of unifying. Uh, A Princeton uh, professor, J. Gresham Machen, and Princeton for a long time had stayed uh, and had remained quite a conservative uh, seminary and uh, and, uh, place. So J. Gresham Machen uh, was very prominent in the denomination and could stand up against certain people. By 1921, though, the uh, Presbyteries defeated the church union, which was a good thing, 50 to, to 100. Now, one of the moments that happens in 1922 is Harry Emerson Fosdick, who's ordained Baptist but was allowed to preach uh, a very prominent sermon in the First Presbyterian Church in New York City, um, called forth again uh, for a new gospel uh, that was certainly far more imminent and social gospel, and so you know his name, uh, the, the person of positive thinking, right, came through. So that's Fosdick. Well, eventually by 1929, Macon uh, left Princeton uh, and started Westminster Seminary uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, The controversy, eight ministers and Macon uh, were tried before the General Senate in 1936, uh, convicted and removed from their ministry. Uh, Macon led to form a new denomination. Uh, At first, it's not this one. It's called the Presbyterian Church of America. That's the earliest one. Uh, Later on, it became the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, uh, by 1939. Uh, By 1930s, the first wave of American missionaries' uh, effort had collapsed and the theological turmoil, making uh, fundamentalist, modernist controversy a really big thing. Uh, Evangelicals had less influence in America, as you know, until the 1960s again. Probably that bell-shaped curve is starting to drop quickly in political debates. Nothing like 20 years ago, right, the evangelical vote uh, is not a big thing anymore. So you see how this sort of comes and goes as well. Um, Foreign missions uh, eventually grow. Today, uh, missionaries in the Presbyterian uh, Mission Agency of the PCA (laughs) – Uh, There's only actually 170, I checked their website, uh, 170 missionaries working in 50 countries, uh, a little, about one-tenth of what they used to have. And of course, uh, in 1973, our own Presbyterian Church uh, in uh, the PCA broke with the Presbyterian Church, and today uh, the PCA has 600 missionaries um, in 85 countries. So the interest in missions certainly has grown uh, just in our own church, let alone uh, many others. Um, finally, uh, two more slides left. We will finish on time. Uh, uh, 1941, uh, the official organization, uh, Roots of InterVarsity, uh, the British uh, came over to Canada. We saw this as well. Uh, 2014 to 15, there's 985 chapters uh, on 649 U.S. campuses uh, with certain numbers. Last one, of course, our own uh, Reformed University Fellowship, 
somewhere in the mid-1970s. It was uh, uh, initiated, uh, and the uh, roof uh, has experienced rapid growth uh, since then. Um, And so uh, it's uh, on 140 chapters on 37 uh, campuses, mostly in the south, but also uh, in California, Massachusetts, which, again, is a, a big thing to uh, work up here as well. So that's uh, the end that I have today, and then Preston's going to introduce new members. <laughs>